John, and we realized uh, that there might be some uh, overlap in uh, what we were going to be preaching on um, this morning and, and this evening, and, and so uh, we talked about that a little bit. And um, then I went to the men's retreat, and um, as we're thinking on this theme of unity, uh, there's Drew Hunter, our speaker, and uh, he's taking my illustrations. And so I figure between Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and the men's retreat, uh, the Lord has a message for some of us uh, that we need to hear. So uh, uh, you may have... Uh, you may be thinking, okay, if we've heard this this morning or this weekend, why do we need to listen? Well, I, I uh, think if the Lord had to say it three times, he's underscoring it for us. Uh, so let's pay attention uh, to his word. John 17, I'm going to start reading at uh, verse 11. This is Jesus in the middle of his prayer. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am speaking to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Let's ask for God's help now. Oh, Father, as we uh, turn to these words, words uh, which came off the lips of our Lord and Savior, we ask for your help. Uh, there are wonderful things spoken of in these words, and so we need your help to hear them, to understand them, but also to apply them. Lord, we ask that you would use this authoritative, powerful word to encourage us in a, as a congregation uh, toward a unity uh, which you will use to bring uh, sinners into your kingdom. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we turn again uh, to the 17th chapter of John's Gospel. This is uh, the fourth time uh, that we've looked at this chapter. Uh, and uh, just as a way of reminder, this is Jesus' prayer to his Father uh, on the eve of his death. And we've said that it's a remarkable thing for us to have recorded uh, the Son of God doing business at his uh, Father's throne of grace on our behalf. In life, we want someone to be our advocate, our, our representative, our voice, and here we have uh, Jesus, the Son of God, uh, representing our interests before his Father, and it's amazing. And at this point, we've seen 
uh, Jesus asked for three things. Uh, First, he's asked that the Father would glorify him so that in his death he would reflect that glory back to his Father. That was verses 1 to 5. Then he asked that uh, the Father would guard Jesus' disciples as they engage in their God-given mission in the world uh, as Jesus uh, will be leaving to return to his Father's side. And then he prayed uh, that his disciples would uh, be uh, made holy or set apart, that they would be set apart for uh, their mission in the world as uh, Jesus himself sets himself apart for a mission for the world by going to the cross to die. And so we see in each of of these requests, we see something of the, the merciful heart of the Savior of sinners, because each of Jesus' prayers, uh, requests in this prayer, has as its aim uh, the drawing of sinners to himself, drawing them out of the world and drawing them into his love and into the knowledge of himself. So this prayer, these prayer requests are prayers for a church that is engaged in a mission to hold forth Jesus, the Savior of the world, so that people might see him and know him and trust in him and find eternal life in him. This is God's mission uh, 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 through the church to save sinners. This is the common thread that weaves its way through Jesus' prayer in John 17 as he's speaking with his Father. And what we see in this fourth request in verses 20 to 23, that Jesus' heart, his, his interest here is really no different. Because in his fourth request, Jesus prays for the unity of his church so that the world might come to know and come to believe the testimony of Jesus. In John 17, Jesus is praying for the unity of his church, not simply because he loves his church, though he certainly does, but he prays for the unity of his church because he loves sinners. And he desires that through the living, united testimony of his church, sinners might come to know him and be saved. So here's the big idea that I want us, that I think Jesus wants us to get from this text. It's that Jesus prays for the unity of his church because he cares deeply about his gospel-promoting mission, uh, the gospel-promoting mission of the church in the world. Jesus cares deeply about the gospel-promoting mission of the church in the world. And so, on our part, we should strive to maintain and to publicly express that unity for which Jesus prays. And before we look more closely at this passage, I also want to say I think uh, that this text is also um, uh, a timely uh, note for us as, as a congregation here at Harvest. Uh, I think that we're in a, a moment uh, in our congregational life where we might uh, be particularly susceptible to uh, dissension and uh, division. I remember when I was uh, studying at, at Calvin Seminary, I was uh, reading an article on the top 10 uh, opportunities or seasons uh, for church or conflict uh, in a church. And uh, uh, still sort of remember that list. And, and as I, I recall that list, some of the things that we find ourselves in were on that. Uh, building or facilities questions. A uh, big opportunity for conflict as, as uh, uh, people want uh, different things. Uh, staffing changes in times of transition. Another big opportunity for conflict. Uh, so as we find ourselves as a congregation in a, a season of uh, transition, I think this is a timely word. 
Because uh, Satan is not particularly inventive. Uh, He's a committed pragmatist. He does uh, what works. He keeps going back to his uh, old bag of tricks. And so uh, we need to be on guard, I think, as a congregation against uh, the devil's schemes. And we must uh, make every uh, effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we're going to look at John 17 and Jesus' prayer for unity. And here's how we're uh, going to do that. The outline in your bulletin uh, is... Uh, changed just enough so that it's not entirely helpful for you, so don't be confused uh, or scared if I deviate from it. Uh, But we're going to look at the nature of Christian unity, and then the purpose of Christian unity, and then the power for Christian unity. So the nature of Christian unity, the purpose of Christian unity, and then the power for Christian unity. So in our passage, Jesus is praying for all Christians who will come to believe uh, the message about Him. Anyone who will come through the uh, teaching, preaching, and writing of his disciples, who would come to trust in Jesus, Jesus is praying for them. So this is a prayer that Jesus is making uh, with us, with Harvest Church in mind. And he's praying that we might all be one, that we would be united. So what exactly does Jesus mean when he prays for his church to be united? I want to draw out three aspects of what this unity looks like. And the first thing we should notice about the nature of Christian unity is found in verse 22. Jesus says that the glory that the Father has given him, he has given to those who believe in him. In our first look at John 17, we saw that in John's gospel, Jesus' glory sometimes refers to his being the one who shows us who God is. His glory is his uh, radiant splendor, breaking forth and revealing God uh, to the world darkened by sin. That's the glory of Jesus. In his person and in his works, uh, the character and purposes of God are, are shining forth for the world to see. Right? This is, is his glory. It's, it's God's chosen revelation of himself. So when Jesus says that he's given to his disciples and to those who believe in their message his glory, he's expressing to his followers uh, that he has given them the truth of God that he was sent into the world to impart. And it's this revelation of God in Christ that becomes the foundation for Christian unity, for the unity which Jesus prays for. You see, God reveals himself in Christ so that he might, uh, in Christ, bring together one people, one body who would believe in his Son. Another way of saying this is that God reveals uh, who he is, he reveals what's true about himself, with the result that as he does that, some will come to uh, believe and embrace this revelation as true. And in so doing, we'll be uh, united uh, in that truth, we'll be united in Jesus. So when we're talking about Christian unity, it's never a unity that's divorced from truth, but it's always connected to the truth that God has chosen to speak to his people, what he's chosen to reveal to himself. Unity, at least the type that Jesus prays for here, hangs on a shared conviction concerning the truthfulness of what God has said in his Son. There can be no unity where there's not a a shared conviction about fundamental truths, Such as, uh, who's God? Who's Jesus? Who the Spirit is? What the Bible is? How God saves sinners? Some people have suggested that debates over uh, such things are really just an obstacle 
uh, to the unity and the mission of the church. We shouldn't be dividing over doctrine, uh, they say. But doctrine is just truth. Doctrine is, is uh, statements concerning our conviction about who God is and about who man is and, and about what our purpose is and about what the world is like. And it's impossible to have a unity where there's not a shared conviction about such fundamental things. See, God in His Son has spoken an authoritative word. And it's this authoritative word that draws His chosen ones into His family. This authoritative word is necessary for true Christian unity. I think of, of the role an authoritative word has in unity, and I, I, uh, you might think of uh, weddings. I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding rehearsal, uh, and there are sometimes wedding rehearsals uh, where it's not quite clear who's in charge. Okay, you may think, oh, the bride's in charge, maybe the uh, mom thinks she's in charge, maybe the groom thinks he's in charge, who knows. Um, uh, and if there's, not a, if there's not a shared agreement over who's in charge, and if there's not a shared agreement over uh, what the marching orders are in that rehearsal, uh, you all, uh, if you've been to a wedding rehearsal you, uh, where it's been like this, you know the results. It's chaos. Everyone's running everywhere. No one's sure what exactly to do. Right? The authoritative word of saying, okay, the bride's in charge and here's what we need to do. Uh, that unifies uh, the people at, at that wedding party. And it's, it's, it's the same with the church, that God's authoritative word, his, Him having spoken, is what brings true unity. That's the first feature of Christian unity, that it's a unity that's based upon truth. Second feature of Christian unity is that it reveals, or it reflects rather, an invisible heavenly reality. Namely, it reflects a, a unity that exists between God the Father and God the Son. See that in verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So the way that Christians are to interact with each other is intended to resemble the unity that exists between God the Father and God the Son. So here we are getting into deep waters, right? We're inquiring into the very relationship that exists between the persons of the Godhead. And more than that, we're saying that our life together as Harvest Church is in some way meant to mimic or reflect uh, the relationship that exists between the persons of God. Got to wonder, what could this possibly mean? How is the life of Harvest Church supposed to resemble the, the oneness, the unity that's found between the persons of God? I don't think this means that uh, we're uh, united in substance, right? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they, shame, they, they share in the same uh, godness. That's not the type of unity that Jesus is praying for here. Nor is he, can he be praying here for a, a uniformity, uh, that we're all just the same. That's not what unity, uh, the unity that he's praying for uh, here. Just as, as the persons in the Trinity are uh, united, they're also distinct persons, and so that's, we, we can't think of uniformity as, as the goal in mind here. But the Father and the Son are united in another way. Though they're distinct persons, they're united in love. They're united with one purpose, one mission, one passion. Earlier in John's Gospel, in chapter 5, we read of the, the great unity that exists between Jesus and His Father. 
says, Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by Himself. He can only do what He sees His Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son does uh, also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. So Jesus is in 100% agreement with His Father. He is 100% invested in the mission of His Father. He's sent to accomplish the works which His Father has given to Him. He, he reveals what His Father has, has told Him to reveal. There's not um, two separate but overlapping agendas when it comes to the Father and the Son. Right? They, they share uh, the same compassionate heart towards sinners. They're united in their purpose and their plan to save them. They're united as this plan unfolds along the dusty streets of Judea. This is the sort of unity that Jesus is praying would exist between His people. It's not a uniformity. We're not all the same. But like the Father and the Son, this is a prayer that uh, God's people would be of one heart and one mind of one purpose, of one mission, that His people would be united in their belief that Jesus is uh, the Christ, He's the Savior of the world, that we would be uh, united in our, our mission to see Jesus as lifted up and exalted by those in the world. I will probably need those. So the unity which Jesus prays for is a unity in the truth for the cause of Jesus. It's so that we, His people, would be united in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So that's the second thing. It's a unity which reflects the life uh, of God. But to say that this unity reflects uh, um, invisible realities is by definition to say uh, that Christian unity is perceivable. Uh, it's, it's something that can be observed in some senses. Jesus clearly understands that Christian unity is going to have a visible expression because he says that the world will be able to take notice of the uh, unity that exists between the church. Right? This will be a, a visible unity. It will be a provocative unity. It will catch the world's attention. Now, this unity uh, can be displayed in a variety of ways that are, are more formal and uh, less formal. Now, we express this Christian unity as uh, we gather together on Sundays for worship, right? As we sing together, as we pray together, as we um, uh, come to the Lord's table, as we did this morning, together, as we listen to God's Word together, right? That's one of the ways we express the unity of the body. Our Christian unity is displayed in our church membership. We publicly commit ourselves to one another. We take membership vows to participate faithfully in the church's worship and service. Right? To, to not take membership seriously is, not, is to not take uh, Christian unity seriously. But of course, unity is also displayed uh, in less formal ways. It's, it's expressed in the hustle and bustle of everyday life. It's expressed in using Sunday afternoons for hospitality, inviting other Christians into your home and getting to know them. It's expressed as you meet regularly with your small groups. It's expressed as Christian friends uh, love each other by serving each other, by bringing meals to each other, by praying for each other, by applying the gospel to the messiness and, and sin of everyday life, 
by working through our difficulties together, by confessing sin and, and repenting of it together. Right? That's something that, that is, uh, can be visible in the world as we show our commitment to this word, this gospel word that has been spoken in Jesus. But Christian unity is not an end in itself. Jesus prays for the unity of his church for a reason. And it's Jesus' merciful heart toward the world. It's his missionary heart that we see as he gives the reason for his request. His prayer for the unity of the church is not so that the church would be comfortable, uh, so that we would avoid um, the difficulties of fights and squabbles. It's, It's not because he doesn't pray for the unity of the church because he needs something. But he prays for the unity of the church so that the world might believe that the Father has sent him. Now keep this in mind. In John's gospel, the world stands for uh, those who stand apart from God, who are uh, opposed uh, to God in their unbelief, right? They, they uh, don't have faith. They stand apart from God as we all, uh, apart from grace, once did. So, but Jesus, in his prayer then, is making a connection between our unity and the mission of the church, our mission to bring eternal life to the world. The unity of the church is to function as an, as an advertisement to the world that says that the gospel is true, that the gospel is powerful, that the gospel is transformative. Now to be clear, the gospel is true. God's uh, acting in history by sending his son to rescue uh, sinners through the death and resurrection of Christ. That's true whether the church is uh, expressing its unity or not. Churches that divide and denominations that split cannot uh, uh, change the fact that God has done this. And they can't change what God will do. But the unity of the church draws attention to the fact that God is at work. That God is bringing people into His family. That God, by His Spirit, is, is uniting people under the headship of His Son. That He's pouring His love by His Spirit into the hearts of his people, so that that love flows out uh, to one another. To put it another way, Christian unity properly displayed is such a remarkable thing. It's such a, a profound thing that when people see it, they feel compelled to trace that love back to its source, God himself. Now we're living in an age of um, uh, increased fragmentation. Uh, We're increasingly disconnected from one another and and, uh, we have diminished community. uh, community. Our social networks are are breaking down and so community is elusive. Loneliness is pervasive. This is something that was highlighted for us at the men's retreat. The uh, devastating effects of loneliness have been uh, closely documented. Uh, For example, an uh, American Psychological Association study said that uh, the problem of loneliness uh, was uh, more dangerous to a person's health than obesity. That, in fact, chronic loneliness uh, was the same detrimental health effects as smoking uh, 15 cigarettes a day. That's how dangerous loneliness is. According to the same study, that, that uh, over 42 million Americans, 45 and older, suffer from chronic loneliness. This is just a pervasive problem. 
In Japan, the number of people uh, living and dying alone without any real meaningful community has spiked dramatically, so much so that this is considered a, a bit of a, a national emergency. The uh, New York Times has, has documented this, saying that the number of people who ha, uh, have died alone, not being noticed by anyone, sometimes for weeks on end, uh, it has increased to such proportions that a new industry has been created just to clean up what they call lonely deaths. This is tragic. There are entire companies devoted to cleaning out the apartments of people who have died and there have been weeks that have happened before anyone has noticed they're gone. Their lives have been so devoid of meaningful relationships. So statistically, anecdotally, uh, the evidence suggests that our modern world is devastatingly lonely. Probably more lonely now than any other time in human history because we've seen the dramatic deterioration of our social fabric. And so the tender bonds of unity that should exist within the church are to be so contrary to the experience of the world that as the world sees the church, the church will be a powerful confirmation that the gospel is true, that God is at work transforming sinners so that we fall, less, uh, we fall out of love with ourselves and we fall or, or we commit in love to one another. So how is this supposed to work? How, how does uh, practically does uh, our unity and our mission uh, come together? What does it mean to say that, uh, uh, that if the church is, is united, that that's to be part of our mission strategy? Well, here's uh, some applications. It means that we should fight for unity. It means that we should cultivate unity. And it means that we need to take our unity public. So those are our big applications. We need to fight for unity, we need to cultivate unity, and we need to take our unity public. Now, the devil loves to divide. The church, uh, the unity of the church as God intends it, um, uh, is something that Satan loathes. You might think of the unity of the church as um, uh, something like one of those offshore uh, pirate radio stations that the Allied forces used to use to uh, transmit radio broadcasts into Germany during World War II. Right, the Nazis uh, worked furiously to block these uh, transmissions because these transmissions from another land uh, acted as rays of light that cut into the shadows cast by Nazism. These were distant voices on the radio that spoke to the German people about another way, another rule, not the cruel every person for himself cause that was being advanced by National Socialism, but a world of hope, a world of freedom. These enemy transmissions were treated as a threat to the tyranny of Nazism because they suggested that there was something better, that there was a better way. And I want to think in a similar way, the unity of the church is like a transmission from heaven sent into the world, broadcasting another way, that there's another power, another rule, the rule and reign of King Jesus. The devil can't stop these transmissions, if we continue the metaphor, but he wants to work to jam them or to obscure them. He wants to create uh, divisions and, and infighting in the church so that our life together isn't compelling, uh, but that our testimony is lost amongst the static of fighting and lovelessness. 
So what's the devil's strategy for creating divisions? Now, much could be said about this, but uh, from our text, I want to suggest uh, two ways that he would go about it. If Jesus brings about the unity of his church through his word, through his revelation, the gospel revelation, then the, one, of the, one of the key ways that Satan attempts to sow disunity is by undermining the gospel message. I think he does that in at least two ways. First, he tries to convince us that the gospel is not an authoritative word, to doubt that the gospel is an authoritative word. Now, we might not say that this is the case, that, that we doubt the authority of, of God's word, but uh, it looks like um, people thinking that certain parts of the Bible are, are there that we just don't have to listen to, uh, that, that um, we can sort of selectively edit the Bible according to our wants or needs. I've seen this in churches where uh, there's a, just a decision made on the part of, of people or individuals uh, that, that the commands to forgive someone who's wronged me, to confess sin, uh, to consider the interests of another person ahead of my own, that those are considered things that, that don't have to apply to me, that they don't have to have authority, functional authority in my life. Think of just how much uh, disharmony or how many grudges could be avoided if people were prepared to submit to Jesus' word, to say things like, uh, it's going to be hard for me to talk to this person or to admit this, but I think that this is what God tells me to do, and so I've got to do it. And by his help, I'm going to try to do it. Right? We, when, we, uh, when the devil tries to uh, persuade us against believing the gospel is authoritative, it creates opportunity for division. Secondly, uh, the Satan attempts to convince us that God's word, the gospel, it can't be relied on. It can't be relied on. It might not be said again uh, on our lips, but when we buy this lie that God's word can't be trusted, uh, it looks like uh, not believing that God's word can help us navigate personal conflict, or that God's word uh, can't be counted on to help us deal with deep wounds. When we believe that, when that subtle lie creeps in, uh, that, that, that God's revelation, that the gospel is not able to deal with that, uh, then the results are disastrous for the unity of the church. Is the gospel of Jesus really sufficient to heal this marriage? Does the gospel of Jesus really transform the way I respond to my brother or my sister who has sinned against me? Right? When we think that the, the gospel uh, doesn't speak to parts or portions of our life, then we're setting ourselves up for deep division, power of personalities, battle of personalities, and division sets in. So if the devil attempts to subvert unity by undermining the gospel's authority and undermining the gospel's reliability or our, our, our trust that the gospel can actually work, then to cultivate unity will involve us together working to understand and submit to and depend upon the gospel more. Now, Pastor Dale touched on this uh, uh, this morning a number of ways, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but uh, what this looks like is together as a community pursuing a greater understanding of the gospel, uh, seeking to apply the gospel with, with greater faithfulness and greater frequency. Right? Because as we apprehend what God in Christ has done, as we understand the significance of the gospel for our everyday life, 
uh, we, we see that we are united in Christ to one another. So what this could look like practically, I mean, uh, it looks like joining a small group, striving together with other Christians, with Bibles open. Uh, we're seeking to, to take hold of Jesus more, to know Jesus more, to, to understand His life-giving power more. We're looking together to Jesus for guidance. We're looking to Jesus as we confess our sin and as we uh, apply grace. We're taking hold of the promises of Jesus that's ours in the gospel and we're encouraging each other with these things. We're leaning into community. Now, just want to encourage you that if you're not part of a small group, uh, please stop by the welcome desk uh, afterward and, and uh, pick up uh, one of my cards or Pastor Dale's cards uh, and send an email. We'd be happy to connect you to a small group. This is a, a, an easy step in which you can get connected to community and visibly express the unity of the body. Yet all this being said, we can fight for unity being aware of the devil's schemes, and we can cultivate unity by uh, pursuing a greater knowledge and application of the gospel. But if we're not inviting the world uh, to see God's power at work in the redeemed community, then we are uh, failing to live into Jesus' strategy, his mission strategy here. Our unity with each other in Christ is meant to be witnessed by the world. Now, unfortunately, I think that uh, the way we manage our time often means that we think uh, uh, that we uh, can enjoy gospel community on, uh, in certain moments, and, and then we engage in gospel mission uh, at, at separate moments. They're, they're two separate things. We can fall into the trap of thinking that uh, evangelism is something that we do in addition to Christian fellowship or Christian community. We don't think that it's, it's something that we do in Christian community, as we engage in Christian community. That's not the way that Jesus prays. He prays that we would be doing a mission. We would be on mission together uh, as we express our unity. When Jesus prays for our mission, he prays that our community would be an essential part of our witness. Now this means that we should be uh, promiscuous and unapologetic about inviting other people in to see gospel community at work to see the gospel being applied in our everyday lives uh, with each other. If we're living out the gospel in our small groups or with our friend groups, uh, then we should be regularly seeking to uh, apply scripture, apply the gospel uh, to our own lives. Because we recognize we need the gospel first of all. We need the gospel more than anyone. And so Jesus wants us to invite people into that, to invite friends and acquaintances uh, who are not Christian to have a front row seat to see what it's like to be part of the gospel community, the community which God, by His Spirit, is knitting together in love through the gospel. If we're carrying out Jesus' mission and if we're doing it by Jesus' strategy, then Harvest Small Groups, for example, should be places where there are regular visitors who are just watching, watching us uh, live life in light of the gospel, seeing what uh, the gospel looks like as, as, as we have conversations uh, over uh, doing dishes and cleaning up after our small group meeting, or, or talking about the real difficult things we're going through, or frankly and honestly uh, laying out our sin and applying the gospel to that. Our small groups and, and, and our community together as a church, we should regularly be expecting and inviting people, come and see what this looks like. Come and see. 
And we should be expectant that as people are there, as they see the gospel of God at work, some by God's grace will uh, be compelled, strangely drawn to the Jesus that is at the center of our life together. That's Jesus' expectation in his prayer. Now, if you're here tonight and you're uh, not a Christian, let me be up front. We would like nothing better than for you to come and worship Jesus, to put your trust in Jesus and find life in his name. But our care for you is not uh, contingent upon you doing that, upon you being a Christian. In fact, we would welcome you, we would invite you to uh, spend time with us. We'd love that. We'd love you to uh, pepper us with questions to see what Jesus has done in the cross and and how that is shaping our life together, how it's shaping the way we deal with our sin, how we live with each other, how with God's help we're we're striving to respond to sin and disappointments. We want you to know that you're not intruding, that you're invited, you're, you're welcome into this. Now, some of you might be thinking that this uh, talk of, of uh, Christian unity sounds uh, pretty nice, uh, but it's not uh, exactly uh, very realistic. Maybe you've been part of a church that's rife with fighting and uh, with divisions and with squabbling. Uh, there's not a unity of, of purpose and of mission or of love uh, like Jesus is praying for here. Disunity is evident just in the way uh, you see people uh, spread out uh, across the pews, or how they uh, sort of disperse in, in post-church uh, coffee time. And so to you, uh, this um, talk of Christian unity sounds pretty Pollyanna-ish. It, it sounds, um, sounds a little far-fetched, maybe. And you know the effect that sin can have in the church, and you know how skillful Satan can be in sowing discord. Or maybe you're at a harvest and um, there are relationships that have been uh, affected by sin. Or, or maybe you're just uh, you're struggling to, to, to sense or experience that unity. It sounds nice, but it feels uh, far off. Well, let me just uh, close with this. Uh, that the power which um, Christians are drawn together by, the power which uh, unites Christians is not found in ourselves, but it's found in God. Paul in Ephesians 4 tells us to maintain uh, the unity of the Spirit, not to manufacture it. Christian unity doesn't come from us. It's not something that we produce. And Jesus in verses 22 and 23, he, um, when he's reiterating his desire that his people would be one, he says um, the reason for that is that I would be in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. The Father is in the Son, and the Son, by His Spirit, comes to dwell in His people. And it's precisely this reason, that the Father in the Son, by the Spirit, comes to dwell in us as Christians, that Jesus uh, connects with this expectation uh, that we will be brought to complete oneness. It's the power uh, of God at work in the people of God. That that the Son comes to dwell in us. We say, how how can that unity be maintained when we look around and we see that we are all, frankly, uh, sinners? Well, Jesus says here that uh, He dwells in His people. It's the power of the God who made heaven and earth 
It's the power of the God who conquered death. It's the power of Jesus, the one who we read about in Revelation 1, who's got the voice like uh, rushing waters. It's this powerful Jesus which brings about this unity in his people. So if the Spirit of of Christ, uh, through the Word of Christ, is able to bring sinners to life, can't he produce unity amongst his people? If Jesus, by his Spirit, through his Word, was able to raise us up to life, can't he also produce unity amongst his church? It's a call to, to trust the Spirit, the power of God. Jesus here is praying for it, so we know it's going to be granted. The Spirit of God is at work in, the, in, in His people, so we know that He's going to do it. So let's commit ourselves to fighting for unity, fighting to preserve it. Let's commit ourselves to cultivating unity amongst the body, and let's commit ourselves to publicly proclaiming or publicly displaying the unity of God's people as we commit to one another in life together. Because the gospel brings community. God creates His people. And God, through this community, invites us to be part of His mission, proclaiming, confirming that the gospel, in fact, is true and powerful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we recognize that there are many uh, factors. Um, We have many enemies that would conspire against our unity as the church. Satan doesn't want it. Our flesh would trip us up and prevent it. The world would not otherwise be interested in it. And so we ask, Lord, with Jesus, that you uh, would give to us unity. That by your word and through your spirit, you would be uniting us in purpose and in mission and in love more and more. So as people look to Harvest Church, they would see a people who are committed to one another, who are on mission together, who, uh, in, uh, because of the gospel, looking to Jesus, are so committed to seeing Jesus made known that people would see uh, that something strange, something otherworldly is happening here. And they would take notice. And they would ask questions. And Lord, you would use that to draw people out of the world and to yourself. Lord, we want to be a part of your mission in the world. We want our testimony, our unity as a church, to be a faithful witness to the fact that the gospel is in fact true and powerful. So do that in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you please stand as we sing our song of response, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds.
the Lord's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord our God lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace. Amen.